Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Salwa Ismail. Salwa is Professor of Politics at SOAS. She's the author of many articles and books, including the fabulous um, Rule of Violence, Subjectivity, Memory, and Government in Syria, published by Cambridge in 2018. I think that's one of the best books on Syria in uh, in a long, long time. I think it's an incredibly rich, theoretically uh, mature and sophisticated book. So I'm really excited to have Salwa on the line today. Salwa, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for asking me to do this podcast, Simon, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise, likewise. I'm really, really keen to, to talk to you about this and, and all of your work. So I normally start, Salwa, with a question about how um, how you got interested in in both the Middle East and also academia. So um, in, in politics, I guess, and, and, and studying for, for a PhD, what, what was it that prompted your, your career trajectory in that direction, please? Well, I couldn't say that it was a planned trajectory as much as it was just something that evolved over time. Um, I was studying for my undergraduate degree. I became interested in, in the social and political changes and transformations that were taking place at the time. That was in the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, uh, particularly kind of the shift from nationalist politics to Islamist politics. And I was um, challenged to understand how this shift came about. And so that was the beginning of interest in academic pursuits and kind of scholarly research. Right. Um, uh, and um, so there was just really immediate questions having to do with um, with this particular shift that I just mentioned, and um, I was just interested in um, what it was at the time about uh, the Islamist discourses that found appeal and uh, caused this move away from you know what what appeared to be you know kind of the dominance of secular politics. Right. Uh, and and or, or more nationalist politics at the time, uh, so that was um, kind of a question for me, and I became interested in Islamist discourses and how you go about studying these discourses and what how you um, how one can explain their um, that the, the reception uh, that they found among particular segments of the population and the support that they found. So these were some of the earlier questions sure. uh, that I can trace to my undergraduate studies and, and, and were the early pursuits at a postgraduate level. Where did you do your undergraduate studies? So I studied at the American University in Cairo, where, where I grew up. Right. And uh, the, you know, um, I was a like, first-hand witness to the transformations that I became interested in, um, in studying. Uh, you know, as, from a, let's say, an academic perspective, but also just as a you know, a concerned citizen at the time. Yeah, of course. I was going to ask you, actually, if there were particular instances that, that prompted this interest, or if it was just maybe a, a reflection of the, the political landscape and climate of the time. Yeah, I think just, you know, um, growing up uh, in, in Egypt and, you know, kind of these were formative years, you know, when coming of age and seeing that actually there was this major shift in... Um, not just in the discourses, but in the practices and the symbolisms 
uh, you know, so we you you see the growing Islamization of the public sphere, uh, and you become part of that in a sense. You're not not just a witness, but you know, you're kind of wanting to understand and um, and perhaps find some find some appeal in it as well. You know, uh, at a personal level, um, it, it, you know, in those early days, thinking well, you know, there was, it, it speaks to some something. You know. Um, uh, um, that perhaps how to respond to um, well political changes or um, uh, you know how to perhaps also articulate uh, certain aspirations and norms and so on. Um, you know, in a sense, you have to understand that during that time, the Islamists represented the challenge to practices of power and, and, and to the dominant regime, which was not very representative, that, you know, was the growing social economic disparities that came with the, uh, the economic opening in Egypt and was obviously happening in other countries of the region. And therefore, the Islamist challenge was not just, you know, to be understood or to be approached only as kind of a uh, growing religiosity, but also was a political challenge. And as a young person at the time, this political challenge, I think, you know, kind of spoke to, um, you know, aspiration for change, for more representative government and so on. Um, so that these were really the early um, uh, influences in terms of becoming interested in um, uh, understanding the social and political transformations that were happening. Was that interest purely intellectual, or did it take on a more practical dimension at this point? No, I I think you know I uh, from early on I was not really someone who's an activist um, in terms of engaging in in student politics or uh, political groupings and organisation. Uh, although you know out of a personal curiosity, I did actually kind of um, uh, attend. Uh, piety circles and uh, religious lessons, and that uh, out of personal interest and curiosity, I would, but I didn't really engage in in any of whether it was you know kind of secular Islam uh, or um, student politics. I wasn't in directly engaged. I was more engaged through uh, research from these early days, and I think that stayed with me in the sense that. I found that, you know, kind of my activism comes through my writing more than uh, it is through uh, organised uh, politics. Right. That That's interesting to know. And I can certainly see how that might might play out. When I was reading your work, and in particular your, your more recent book on Syria, I can see how there's a, there's a real anger and a political um, anger, I guess, is, is maybe the word for it about what was happening. So I, I guess that, that agency and that expression of, of protest comes out through your writing, as you say. And I think that's maybe quite visible for, for me when I was reading it. Well, I think you, perhaps uh, this also predates my work on Syria. So if you look at my early, one of my earlier works, which was which, uh, uh, political life and Kyrie's reporters, uh, and, and of course the earlier work that I did on Islamist politics, was really trying to understand how certain forms of politics um, represent uh, contestation, interrogation of power practices. And, and, and this became clear to me through the ethnographic work that I did in Cairo. Yeah. Through just coming to know people in their everyday life, 
and how through their everyday social relations and communities and, uh, and everyday practices, in their own way, ordinary people question power and, uh, and pose a challenge to it. And, um, and I thought that you know, my role as, a, as an academic and uh, as a scholar is to understand these practices from these people's perspective and to bring that understanding uh, to bear on how we do research and how we attempt to represent um, politics in the region and politics for ordinary people. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear you say that. And I, I, I want to touch on that in a, in a little bit. But if I may, can we just quickly go back to your, your graduate studies then? I mean, you, you had this burgeoning interest, as you say, but then in, um, in sort of in the political transformations that were taking place. But then what did you end up doing for your, for your PhD and where did that intellectual direction take you in? So that's precisely what I did for my PhD. Right, okay. To look at the changing discourses, the shifts from nationalist uh, discourses to Islamist discourses. And, you know, I, I, so I did my PhD in the 1980s, um, mid-late 1980s. And of course, that uh, you know the intellectual influences was you know what is known as the linguistic turn, the shift to understand how discourses generate meanings and how these meanings then kind of um, influence um, power relations. You know, kind of in a, in a Foucauldian tradition, but but also uh, my approach or my understanding of. Um, discourse and power is always grounded in the materiality of a particular social and political context. So the materiality of the context uh, that I'm interested in was that of also neoliberalization and growing social disparities and so on. So that uh, I had to understand how kind of the uh, discourses of power and the and those the cha- and, and the challenging. Uh, uh, languages that were being formed through, you know, kind of the religious language or politicized religion, uh, were very much grounded in those uh, in, in the political context and in these kind of politically economy transformations um, uh, and you know, the, the the growing social and economic disparities uh, happening in Egypt, but you know, kind of in many countries of the region. Yeah. Uh, so that was the work I did for my PhD, and that some of it then kind of uh, you know was later published in articles and 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 um, and also in in my book on on rethinking Islamic politics. Which, yeah. Yeah. So where did you do that, Salwa? So I, I studied. I I I did my postgraduate uh, uh, studies in, in Canada. Okay. Uh, first. Um, I did a master's degree in as my master in Ontario, and I did my PhD at McGill. Okay, so one of the things that I find fascinating about your work and and indeed others is this this focus on the interaction of discourse and action. But can you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you fit those two together, please? Because I think there's there's some who struggle to do that and. And there's a bit of a gap between words and deeds, but I think you weave those two together quite quite nicely across your work. Yeah, um, there is a caricature of like postmodernist thought, and people are influenced by Foucault that they only think that um, everything exists in just words and in language or discourse, and there is no reality out there. But 
in fact, you know, in, in the whole post um, structuralist and linguistic turn was also grounded in um, the immateriality. It was not, it was to say that actually the full meaning of words and discourses is acquired in, in a particular context, material context and historical context. So that uh, meanings were not just internal discourses, but in, in kind of interact, aligned out of interaction between uh, language uh, or you know discourses and particular historical context, and that we can only kind of get a sense of this full meaning or as much of it uh, if we connect those languages to the particular context and see that interplay and interaction. Um, so, like in, in in the early work that I did on Islamist politics, I tried to understand why the you know the language that they use, the like you know how, it, how the formulations that draw on religious language, uh, Islamic uh, uh, signs and symbols, have meanings and we uh, an appeal to ordinary people, and and um, it's only seeing how these are kind of that appeal is, uh, uh, and, and the meanings are, are, are quite fully or actualized um, by, through, the, through the terms in which they kind of link to people's practices and understandings and the way they make sense of uh, words, symbols, and, and signs. Uh, so that the full meaning of these Islamic discourses will not to be thought or understood in just Textually, but rather what how people received them, understood them, articulated them, translated them, or interpreted them. Uh, so, I, so you really have to have this continuous movement back and forth between you know the text that you read and what people actually the senses that people make of them in their everyday language, in their everyday thinking, in their everyday practices. This is where you know the full meaning of uh, the language and discourse. Can, can, you know, can be classed through. Yeah. Uh, you, you've done a lot of... Well, uh, yeah. Sorry, Salwa. Well, let me just... So, so if I was to give you a concrete example... Well, you preempted um, my next you know, question. When, when Islamists talk about, for example, uh, use the term arbitration, arbitration to God, yeah. it, the term arbitration, has, it's only in, term, in how people practice arbitration that it, it's in the practice itself and the senses that people confer on it, that uh, the appeal to the term arbitration and 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 it in religion is, is then makes sense to the people and uh, and uh, and becomes meaningful to them. It's only as it links to their own practices and and the own means that they invest in it. Thank you for that. that I think that's that's really useful and it, it sheds a bit of light on the on the sort of the practical manifestation of. Of some of this. Uh, one of the other themes that I really enjoyed in your early work is the, the spatial dimension and how that sort of plays out, particularly in, uh, in, a, in a piece that you wrote in the Arab Studies Journal in 1996, the, the, the spatial aspects with regard to um, urban Cairo and the state. And I think that the space fits neatly within this sort of Foucauldian lens that, that, you, that you have used across your career. But could you say a little bit just about what you were trying to do with that spatial aspect and, and why you found that interesting with regard to, to Cairo and the modern state, please? 
Yeah, so again, as I said, I started with asking, okay, why did Islamist movements and Islamist groups find appeal among certain segments of the population, and in particular sites? And in order to understand that, then I had to look at these sites and to approach space as social and as political, um, and only in order to explain, um, quote unquote, the success of Islamist groups, uh, organizations, particular spaces. I had to ask, what about those spaces that made Islamist groups, uh, groups appeal to people, or the other way around? What about those spaces that attracted Islamist groups to organize and, um, and agitate and mobilize? And so it was actually then kind of the question become looking at the social uh, relations and the networks of in that you that are grounded on those spaces, how these spaces are social you know, through people's practices, interaction, and, and, and by extension, and political. And, and it's, in a sense, once we understand that, we can see how certain forms of politics can find grounding and, and anchoring in such spaces. Um, so I think as if, I, if I can just kind of reflecting on the movement of the work was from looking at the sociality of language to looking at the sociality of space, and then perhaps later on at looking at the sociality of time, um, that it's, we can not really understand language or space or time in the abstract, but we can only understand them as people invest them in meaning, with meanings and with their practices. And before you kind of had to approach language, space, and time as social um, and, 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 and also uh, methodologically, by then inquiring into people, how people constitute and construct that. This is not to say that um, you know there's only a bottom-up approach to this, but we also need to look at institutions of power and how they are engaged also in the production of um, discourses, spaces, uh, and time. And I think that's it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's so very important that we bring those those different facets together to understand uh, everyday life and you've done a lot of work on on everyday life in a number of different contexts but then also as you say that the bottom-up approaches of everyday life of quote-unquote ordinary uh, people across the region but then also in the ways in which sovereign power operates how sovereign power regulates all aspects of of life across political projects and i think it's it's so important that we bring those together um to, to help us as in our in our quest to, to facilitate the best possible scholarly work pos- that we can that we can achieve. Yes, I uh, I agree. You know, while I tended to focus on the bottom up and people's everyday practices and practices of resistance, I also was always aware that we cannot understand this without looking at practices of power and institutions of power and institutions of state and, you know, uh, using, of course, the state uh, not in the sense of a unitary entity, but as kind of dispersed through all kinds of uh, institutions and mechanisms of Mm. government. And that... I guess it really comes out in your in your recent book on on Syria, but before we get onto that, can you just articulate what prompted the move from Egypt into into focusing on Syria? Because you've got quite a bit of, of work that looks at Syria, um, 
alongside, obviously, this huge canon of work that you've got on Egypt. So what prompted that intellectual shift or diversion or whatever you might want to call it? Um, well, to begin with, I was always interested in Syria. For my, my PhD project, I actually wanted to compare Islamist movements in, in, in Egypt and Syria. But uh, in the 1980s, following the events of Hama, yeah. the violence uh, that the regime enacted in Hama um, in the aftermath of the challenge, Islamist challenge, um, it, it was very difficult to go and do peaceful work uh, in Syria. And therefore, that was kind of interest was shelved for a while, and perhaps kind of, you know, subconsciously uh, I, I had it, but was not really, I wasn't very conscious of it. But once I finished my work, uh, the, the, the work on urban um, uh, transformations in, in Cairo, I was thinking that, you know, the, there was a need to compare that with other cities, and Damascus was always of interest to me. And uh, particularly that I was fascinated by the work of social historians, uh, people like uh, Abikarim Rafer and André Raymond, who uh, Abikarim Rafer had done great work on, on Damascus and other Syrian cities, and André Raymond who had worked on both Cairo and, 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 and Damascus. And so I kind of found the history of, you know, uh, of urban spaces and of cities of the region, but particularly Cairo and Damascus, was very, very interesting. And of course, you know, there was always there was the, work, the work that uh, of the Tarani did on, uh, you know, on part, the politics of the notables, which were city-based and so on. And there was a history to be told about the politics of cities and in the contemporary period that I felt was kind of missing. And Cairo was just one part, my work on Cairo and the work of others, of course, many, you know, uh, colleagues uh, like uh, um, Diane Singerman and and many others uh, had kind of, you know, told part of that story, and and therefore um, I I became interested in you know, in the comparative work and looking at other cities at that time, Damascus. So my early um, entry into Syria, the study of Syria, was really through the the, the urban research. I was interested in the, in in the transformation of the Damascus under the past. Fascinating. Um, but it's only by being in Syria that I thought also there is another story to be told or the other, there are other questions to be raised, and these concern the, the role of violence, how violence was constituted of the Syrian policy. And that's a wonderful segue into your book, your Cambridge book titled The Rule of Violence, Subjectivity, Memory and Government in Syria. And I, I think this is a wonderful book. I think it's so very important, not just for the study of Syria, but for the study of authoritarian regimes and for the study of how, how power operates across, across the Middle East broadly. I think it's such a powerful book intellectually and, of course, a deeply depressing account of the way in which, which um, the Assad regime and Assad regimes have regulated life across Syria. Can you tell us a bit about what you were trying to do with the book, please, Salwa? Um, well, as I mentioned, I really wanted to see how violence affected or shaped Syrians, shaped Syrians' understanding of themselves and of others. Um, and um, I was intrigued by the fact that some aspects of the practices of violence were kind of silenced and neutralized. So it was 
Syria, when I was in Syria, when I began my research in Syria in 2002 and onwards, uh, it was possible to have open conversations with Syrians in which they, they would mention uh, the constraints on political action arising out of the, uh, the work of the, the extensive work of surveillance that they were made subject to, the surveillance by the security services, uh, and how this was undermining the nascent civil society movement that emerged uh, in, in the uh, following the death of uh, Hafez al-Assad in 2000 and, and the assumption of power on by Bashar al-Assad at that time. Um, so there was, as you know, there was the civil society movement that was hoped for a kind of a, a civil and peaceful transition into more uh, democratic and representative politics. But in fact, very soon, uh, the Assad regime uh, under Bashar uh, retrenched into um, its modes of governance, which are repressive, authoritarian, and violent. Um, and Syrians, ordinary Syrians and intellectual artists and so on, uh, in, in different ways, continued their struggle to bring about change. Um, and I was interviewing Syrians at the time, and it struck me that there were things that were said about that struggle and things that were not said. And I, so, and I thought that the unsaid was also indicative. Yeah. Um, that Syrians would speak about the repressive policies or about the surveillance, but would not really speak about you know, some of the spectacular events of violence as what happened in Hanan. So that was a puzzle for me, um, what this event meant and what the silence meant. Yeah, I found similar things in some of the work that I've done recently in terms of of the things that were unspoken and the, the sort of the personal regulation of of memory like Hamar. But I think what, what I found just devastatingly disturbing about the book was just the 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 detail that you go into in terms of the holistic regulation of all aspects of 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 control of, of daily life. I mean this is a a, a biopolitical machine that is designed to regulate all aspects of life across Syria and reinforce regime power, seemingly at all costs. Yes, absolutely true. Um, in in the practices of power or um, the modes of control pursued uh, by the Assad regime. Uh, were so extensive um, and uh, aimed to regulate all aspects of uh, of Syrian life. Um, well, I'm not really sure if we can argue that the regime achieved its, you know, kind of fully um, the aspiration to be totalitarian in some way, but it had features of totalitarianism. And I think, obviously, with the uprising and the increased violence, that's exactly what's happening, is, is to kind of actualize through violence this totalitarian control uh, by generating... So uh, if uh, fear uh, was not sufficiently generated through surveillance and through monitoring and uh, penetration of all societal spaces by uh, the apparatus uh, coercion, then uh, violence was kind of uh, practices of violence, uh, extreme violence, 
body-centered violence, massacres and torture. All of these were to then operate to shape Syrians as political subjects, inscribe on their bodies and on the landscape memories that they should not forget about how they should be positioned in relationship to the regime, what kind of subjects they are, what kind of conduct is expected of them. Once again, you deploy a Foucauldian analysis, but at times it almost feels as if you're straying more into the work of Giorgio Agamben than Foucault in terms of the regulation of life. Is that fair or is that maybe me reading more into it because of my own interest in Agamben? I think I am in conversation with both Foucault and Agamben, but I also feel that, which I say in the book, that both kind of did not take much account or at least dwell very much on the question of the affect on emotions and how practices of power and violence aim as much as not what people think and how they regulate themselves, but how they feel. And that feeling is, you know, kind of you can conduct people through also manipulating how they feel about themselves and others. And of course, how people feel or emotions and affects are also social, kind of generated in social context and shaped by social context. I think that, you know, when Foucault's work on the prison in the modern period is kind of changing forms of punishment and forms of discipline, bringing about disciplinary power, there was a focus on this, you know, kind of soul-oriented through internalizing practices of power, self-surveillance and monitoring. But all of it seemed to be kind of about developing in a kind of cognitively in ways of thinking, but rather not paying attention actually to how ways of feeling could also be part of this equation. And therefore, that's why violence really does and violent practices in prisons and torture do not disappear in the modern period, not just in quote-unquote kind of developing countries or global south, but these practices can also be observed in institutions in the global north as well, or institutions that the global north has a hand in running, you know, so whether it is, you know, prisons in Iraq where the Americans were involved in or the running of Guantanamo and so on. We don't, we see that the so-called medieval practices that are body-centered continue. And these have to have something to do with the kind of assumptions that are made about how people think, not only think, but feel, and how you can conduct or direct their feelings. You know, when you think about the enhanced interrogation that was used by the Americans centered on generating helplessness, dread, fear, hopelessness, these senses in the detainees, so they would not just confess, but that they become different kind of subjects. 
controlled by um, the torturers and the, the psychologists and so on in, in, in Guantanamo, um, or in those black sites that uh, were uh, quote-unquote terrorists were uh, rendered, then we see that actually kind of the, we need to bring back some of these factors, these concerns that, that were thought to belong to, you know, kind of medieval Practices hours in Foucault's account. Sure. So uh, we've taken up so much of your time already, but if I may ask one final question, and I, I fear it's not particularly optimistic or, or um, positive, but I wonder, in your account of, of what's happening in, in Syria and, and indeed across Egypt, what, what scope is there for, for agency in all of this? Um, I'm not pessimistic in the sense that um, I, I, I do believe that ordinary people uh, have uh, um, means of acting and resisting uh, in small ways uh, at times when they are overpowered by uh, these institutions uh, of violence, uh, repressive, uh, um, repressive regimes, authoritarian regimes. Um, they have the, the means of resistance in small ways in the everyday, uh, in, in, uh, and, and that we cannot discount that even in the worst of times. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so I, 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 I'm still very hopeful and I do believe uh, that the seeds of resistance are, are there, um, the ground of resistance is there, and uh, um, it, it's just kind of a question of, uh, of time and that we can see uh, people rising. We, we, we've seen it and we can't give up on, on all these possibilities. We have to be always hopeful. Well, on that positive note, I think we must say thank you to you, Salva. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Once again, it's incredibly provocative, much like the book. I urge everyone to go out and get a copy if they've not already done so. But thank you so much, Salva. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Simon. Very thank much you. enjoyed it. Thank you. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>